conservation travel sometimes provides us with experiences that we were not anticipating. For the better, even for the worst. Between missed planes, unexpected injuries, and close calls with wildlife, travel gives us some of the best stories to retell around a warm campfire. Welcome to Rewildology, the nature podcast that delves into the human side of conservation, travel, and rewilding our planet. I am your host, Brooke Mitchell, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Today's conversation is the second episode in the super fun mini-series called Conservation Chronicles, Tales from the Field, where I sit down with a former guest to explore the most unforgettable tales etched into their memories. The next storyteller in this series is Court Whalen, PhD, Chief Sustainability Officer at Natural Habitat Adventures. Oh, prepare yourself for remote medical evacuations, lost travelers, an intimidating silverback, and so much more. Oh, and once you've enjoyed court stories, scroll through the archives all the way back to episode five to listen to Court share his journey into conservation travel, what the field is, and how we all can maximize our positive impact through travel. I do have one little quick ask before releasing you into Court's adventurous world. Please rate and review the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and or any of the above. Share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to post on social media, be sure to tag us at Rewildology and let me know your thoughts about today's conversation. I always love when you all reach out to me in chat. So whether you're a seasoned traveler or wildlife enthusiast, prepare to be entertained by Court's incredible adventures and his dedication to conservation tourism today on Rewildology. Court, welcome back to the show. It has been so, it's been years, literally, since you've been on the show. And I'm sure in this amount of time, you have more stories and all those crazy stories from your wonderful career that you've had so far. So I want to set the scene here. Let's pretend that we are at a campfire right now in the Rocky Mountains, you know, post hike. You're telling me crazy stories. We have a nice beverage in hand today. I have my coffee. And what is one of the wildest stories you've had in your career? Set the scene for us. Like what where are we? What year is it? What are the things? All the things. Go for it. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome to be back here, Brooke. Great to see you again. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's always one that clearly comes to mind for this. Um, and it, it yeah, we're going in this the sort of way back machine to the year 2010 um, in Meru National Park, Kenya. And this is this is you know I I had been guiding a bit. Up until that point, um, I really kind of started expedition leadership and guiding in 2003, I believe. Um, but as you can imagine, the amount that I'm guiding today is is so much more. So I was still I still kind of felt sort of green at that point. But I was also I, I had dozens of expeditions under my belt. So I kind of felt like I was really getting in the groove of it. And this one, of course, just totally threw everything for a loop. Um, but like all stories, you know, stories are made when when it hits the fan um and yeah it's 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 a wild it's a wild one um so yeah we're in Meru National Park in Kenya 2010 
I'm leading my first African safari. Um, and of course we have local guides and local naturalists and all that. But at this point I was a graduate student studying ecotourism and I was there with my mentor and we were running a, a travel program for uh, the Florida Museum. And so we got people that were like members and people that were local and kind of friends of friends. And so we, we you know, for lack of a better word, kind of cobbled together this group of, of great people how maybe like 15, 15 guests, something like that. So we're, you know, if you know the safari industry, we're in about three different vehicles. Um, so the, the adventure, the way that I had planned those safaris is we were all rather local to the Gainesville, Florida area. Um, maybe a couple people flew differently, but at that point, you know, not having planned a lot of travel, but you know, how do I put this? I thought it was the expectation to like plan everybody's flights and fly with them and go over there. Um, this trip was one of my big lessons is to don't just don't do that. Let, let guests <laughs> fly on their own, get there on their own, have someone ready to pick them up. But like trying to do that and guiding a trip is it's just too much of a, a storm. Anyway, I digress. So it started off with um, a rainy afternoon in Gainesville, Florida flying um getting ready to fly across the atlantic over to nairobi kenya and so in the summer we i think it was an august trip because we were, we were timing it to hit the migration in the, in the Maasai mara kind of perfectly and it, you know florida thunder showers in the afternoon can be pretty commonplace and again another learning experience is you know try not to get an afternoon flight out of florida for like a big adventure because if thunderstorms get pretty hairy which they can do it just shuts the whole place down so this is like a multi-part story, but I'll make this part of the story short. You know, we fly out of Gainesville, we fly to Jacksonville. So we're like, you know, a two hour car ride away, but we took a, a quick huddle jump uh, flight just so we could be on staging ground and make the big flight. Anyway, massive thunderstorms were all in. Uh, flight from Jacksonville to, I think it was to maybe Amsterdam and then to Nairobi. But anyway, it was the big international flight gets canceled. Um, and it is just, a total mess like just it's weird to say but like the airline industry i think has gotten a lot better in the last decade and so just you know think back 15 almost 15 years ago and it was it was just a total mess and so you know i'm on the phone with like different travel agents and, and folks to help book us and we're you know i've got my co-guide standing in line at like the the delta counter that's now 200 people long this is a big you know big international flight and so it, the trip starts off with like, I have, you know, basically 15 people under my watch and like, I have all their records, all their booking, like it's my show and the flight gets canceled. And you know, their alternative is like, oh, well the, the next flight that we automatically rebook you on is like four days from now. Oh I'm no. Like, what is not acceptable? Like you can't miss that much of a safari. Like that it's, no. it's ruined, you know? Like, so anyway, so the trip starts off in this really kind of crummy note. Um, I, we, we get every, again, part of the issue with like flying, um, when everybody's under your command is like, I had to get the hotel for the night because, well, I'm just going to go to the airport at 4am when the first desk for the first flight opens and I'm just going to hound them to get this group of 15 people on the next flight. Like it's one thing if it's like you and your, your partner or whatever, like, right. you see, but like 15 people is kind of an act of God. So to this day, I don't know exactly how I did it, but I just, I, I went just with like game face on and I got everybody booked on the, the first flight. You can imagine the logistics of like telling people when you go to bed, like, Hey, 
I might be calling you at 5 a.m. to get packed and ready and board a flight, or I might not. I don't really know. I'm just going to see what I do. So I'm, you know, I'm this young graduate student and, you know, these people are trusting, but they're also like, oh my God, this young kid is like in charge of our, you know, next three weeks of happiness and whatnot. So the reason I'm telling you this part of the story is that like, it did work out. We were only one day delayed, but it kind of just set us off on this like really exhausting foot. Like it was like, oh my God, what trials and tribulations. So we finally get there, we get picked up um, because we missed a day and a night. We essentially like just completely nixed the um, first overnight in Nairobi, right? So like normally when you do a, a big trip, your first overnight's kind of sort of like near the arrival area just to make things smooth and easy. So we nixed that and we just went straight into the field. So we get out there and then we go to this amazing camp. It's um, it's really like, it's kind of like one of the world premier camps, especially in Kenya called Elsa's. Uh, it, it, it looks like it's pronounced Kopje, but it's like Kope, um, Elsa's Kope in Meru National Park. We get there, we go to our first game drive, and it's amazing, you know. Um, I had not been in safari before. I don't think anybody else on the trip except for my co-guide had been on the safari. So they're all amazed. We're seeing elephants up close. It was awesome. And we're just like, heck yeah. And you know, like that sigh of relief when it all works out. You're like, those last two or three days were pretty much hell, but we're here. And look how awesome this is. And, you know, since I set up the trip to have local guides and kind of directors and all that, like I knew I could, you know, not totally go on cruise control, but like I wasn't likely to have any major logistical snafus because our, our partners on the ground, even if it happened, would be the ones most knowledgeable I had to solve it. So I'm like, OK, great. Um, so we, we get on, you know, the, the first game drive. Fantastic. Um, we go on our second game drive and. Uh, we're we're getting we're loading the vehicles and we're just about to take off, and I'm like the last one in, and I just hear we're well, the last one in my vehicle, so like the other two are still loading, and I just hear this like this scream from not too far away oh, that no. just is like help help help, and like you just know like anybody out there knows when you hear this like certain tone and the frequency of help, you like something bad just happened, and here we are in Africa, it's like an open camp. I'm like my mind's already wild. We run over there, and fortunately, it wasn't any sort of like wildlife issue. Um, but uh, one of the guests uh, just coming out of a room, pro probably tired from you know travel and all that, just made a, a slight misstep, slipped on a little bit of gravel or something. It was like a very normal like pad and compound fracture in her leg. Boom! Compound. Compound fracture, bones sticking out. Oh my out. god! Yeah, it, it was. And it was such an innocent little thing. Like it was nothing crazy. It wasn't like a, a feat of strength. And um, and she was, I think she was like 83. And so it's, it's a pretty big deal. And so I, I go over there and had, you know, some first aid medical training. And, and, you know, again, we just hear help. We see her roommate propping her up from the back and her just sitting on the ground with like her knee up in the air. And, you know, I look down, I see like her shin, like the bottom of her pants are like it's all wet. And I'm like, oh that's all blood like you oh know God. like she her bone came out it yeah really really gnarly um so uh that's the stage so here we are like kind of still exhausted kind of elated you know i'm kind of thinking of this sort of cruise control type mentality and here i have like a major medical situation like a day's drive from nairobi or anywhere like meru is a, a national park that is 
it's not really on the safari trail, um, but it's one of the biggest national parks in Kenya. Um, and it's beautiful. It's extraordinary. It's not going to compare to like the Masai Mara or some of the more iconic ones that are just like chock full of wildlife, but there is great stuff there. But as a result, it's really, really remote. Like the beauty of it is that's super duper remote. Um, and so then the lodge manager comes over and we're like assessing the situation. We're like, holy cow. The first thing we need to do is take care of this, like this bone. Cause like what happens when a compound fracture is like the, the tendons and ligaments and all the, the stuff kind of constrict and kind of make it perpetually worse. If you don't initially address this, the bone that's now poking out of the skin and then you have risk of infection and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, you know, he gets a elementary school ruler basically as a, as a makeshift split. And we get like rubber bands and t-shirts and tape and we're like taping her just to, just to stabilize. Meanwhile, she is a trooper of all troopers. Like she's not crying. She's not wincing. She's just like, she's like, thank you for helping. Let me know what I need to do. Yeah. And so, um, then, you know, the, the next thing is to call what's, what's called the flying doctors. And fortunately I have not had to deal with them since, but at that time, you know, there is a company, I don't know if it's like nonprofit or what, but they're basically just doctors that are kind of like on standby at major airports, I think around Africa, but definitely in Kenya. And we mobilized them and, you know, this is a full on medical evacuation, like a really big deal. And so they fly in this private airplane, um, you know, with all the medical supplies, kind of like a, a mobile hospital that can fly. Um, and they land in the airstrip, you know, they, they, you can imagine the logistics of like getting us like, where are you? Okay, gotcha. What's the situation? What do we need to bring with us? Like anticipating uh, supplies and gear and medications and whatnot. And so then they, they get to the airstrip. The airstrip's like an hour and a half away or something. It's, it's not real close, or at least it seemed like that. I mean, you know, this is all like <laughs> triage blur. So we're just there with this lady for sitting on this gravel, trying to make her as comfortable as possible for like three plus hours you know, we're on a satellite phone, like calling her family members and just being like, listen, you know, this, um, we, we definitely need to like, let you guys know what's happening. We probably are going to need some assistance. Like she, I, we don't think she's going to be able to make it back to the U S on her own. This is a full on medical evacuation. Um, and so we, we call the family They're They're of course appreciative and understanding. And this is still even like in the early days of or in my opinion, the early days of satellite phones. Um, but nevertheless, we do all this. Family's notified. The flying doctors finally come in. They are in this bumpy backup, uh, back of a pickup truck with like a full stretcher. We get her on there. We kind of have to like make it underneath her, just the, the way the stretcher works. And, you know, the whole time I could just see her leg like kind of moving. She's holding it. We've got it splinted. We've got people holding it. But it's, it had to be painful. Um, and so I felt so bad seeing this. And so we finally get her, we get her in the, the back of the pickup truck, which is, this is all like the most expeditious way to get her from point A to point B, from the field to a hospital in Nairobi, which actually has very, very good hospitals and doctors. Um, so we get her there and we, we finally get her to this airstrip. And you know, this is, this is in the afternoon and it's taken a long time uh, just because we, you know, they're kind of like splinting with medical devices and, and they're, they're getting some medication in her to help dull the pain, taking really good care of her. But then we get in the plane, like all secured. And it, so then I um, go back with her to Nairobi. I volunteer. My co guide is going to lead the rest of the expedition. I'm going to go back, make sure she gets adequate care or great care. And so I'm sitting in the plane. And now, with all this time, the sun is starting to set. And these are all like, you know, all these bush planes are all visual flight rules. And so if it gets 
pitch black, like that plane may not take off and we may have another night. Like it's just, you know, all these like worst case oh, scenario things are right through your head. And so then there's a doctor and then there's a nurse. And so I'm in the back of the, the cabin, basically, like completely hauled out uh, with a stretcher. And, you know, the nurse is putting in IVs and, you know, giving me the bag of fentanyl to hold up over my head so it drips appropriately, you know, and and then the doctor is the pilot. So he's in the front and, you know, he's getting all these instruments and like pushing things and cranking these. And meanwhile, the sun is setting or, you know, the African sunsets was like this, you know, blood red sunset, very, very ominous. And, um, you know, he gets us in position and then he kind of like backs off and and sort of starts like shut things down. I'm like, oh gosh, what, what happened now? You know, so fresh in my mind of like airplane woes and travel woes of like, you know, issues. We've all, we've all been in the plane and we like hear the engines turn off, you know, like for big commercial flights, like what, what are we going to hear about maintenance issues now? So, so anyway, he's, he's kind of slowed things down, not shut things off, but then he starts, um, like swatting at things in the cockpit. He's got, he's got this like bag and he's like scooping things. And it turns out that, um, well, there are, there are tsetse flies. In, oh in the, no! In, so, and this guy is, you know, a, a, you know, African, and, and Africans are not afraid of much. Uh, they're not afraid of lions. They're not afraid of elephants. But they are quite afraid of tsetse flies because it's, you know, possible vector for African sleeping sickness, a pretty major disease. And so, for some reason, instead of just like swatting them or killing them, there were like six of them in there. They were flying all around. He's bagging them with like these Ziploc bags and like keeping them as if to like study, like like how you were like a goldfish <laughs> at a carnival. He's like scooping it, blowing hair and like twisting it off and like tying it. And so here in the seat next to him, there's like these piles of teetsy flies and bags. I'm just like, this this could not get any freaking weirder. Oh my um, God. And so fortunately we rumble down the strip, the, land, the, the airstrip, we do take off you know, hour flight or something like that, get into Nairobi. And of course, you know, it's all just beginning basically. Like now we got to get her to the hospital. We got to get her checked out. We got to figure out how many days we got to figure out like how family's going to come in and take her back. And, you know, she was given really, really great care, but had to be like rushed into, you know, emergency surgery because with compound fractures, like you can, you can get like infections in those bones pretty quickly. Um, so immediately into surgery, um, and you know, it was, it was like just three days of checking on her morning, noon and night, make sure she's, you know, doing well. But then by the time her, her son, her family was able to get to the hospital, you know, it was, it was like three or four days. Um, and so this, this whole ordeal is just kind of going on and on and kind of hitting this plateau. And it was just like the wildest experience. There's, there's no real crescendo to this. Uh, she, she got out safely and she went back home and then she was under, uh, you know, medical care from her, her physician. And I, I believe she probably had to have another surgery or so, um, because you know, it's just, it's a challenging thing. So yeah, that was, that was the, the crazy experience of my first medical evac that, um, was, well, they're all unexpected, but it was unexpected how, how wild it was. Uh, but fortunately, you know, she was all right uh, in the end. But yep, through a lot of a lot of craziness, and you know, it's just it can happen at any time. It can happen at any time. So anyway, that's that's my big medical evac story. That's when things don't go according to plan uh, in rural, remote Kenya. How did you recover from that? It was. I mean, I did rejoin the safari once she was airborne and went on. You know, back to the United States, like you know, my co-guide needed help as well. Cause it was a big group, you know, when you're in three different vehicles. 
so yeah, you kind of got back on safari. I'm just like shaking up like, oh gosh, you know, and I was, I was young at the time. Like I was a student, you know? And so I'm, I'm sort of hardened now from years and years of doing this kind of stuff. But yeah, it was, it was a shocking moment. And I was like, is this really the, the industry or the career or the, the, the occupation for me? And, you know, ultimately, yeah, totally was as, um, you know, if that kind of experience won't scare you away from it, I don't think anything will. Um, so yeah, I stuck with it, completed the safari. It was a great safari, super, super duper exciting. Um, I think we had like air issues in the way home too. Some oh my crazy, God. Like, yeah, it just, uh, it was, it was a trip that just kind of kept on going, but anyway, yeah, it was a wild one. Oh my gosh. That's freaking crazy. Why, what made you decide to stay in the field? Cause like you said, I'm sure a lot of people would have been like, all right, if that's what this field is, I'm done. We're out. Did not, I did not sign up for that shit. Like <laughs> why'd yeah. you stay? Yeah. I mean, to keep on guiding trips, I mean, it's, it is the most thrilling thing you could possibly do is be traveling, you know, for a living, be, you know, showing people the natural world for a living and, and kind of piggybacking on their awe and wonder and reliving places time and time again. Like I, you know, I've been guiding some of these destinations some of these trips for, you know, 20 years now. And yeah, people often ask like after your 20th or your 40th trip down there, like, do you still get amazed at seeing the monarch butterfly migration or, or what have you? And yeah, when you get to kind of see it almost vicariously through your, your guests eyes, it's really, really, uh, invigorating. Um, and it's also just awesome to be out in nature and seeing this stuff time and time again. So yeah, it didn't deter me. Um, it, it did make me think about like how, you know, what can we do to avoid anything like that in the future? And, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, like it was just a total random accident. Like there was just nothing that could really have been done. Um, unfortunately, I think just, you know, when people are tired from those big international flights, like that's certainly uh, part of it, but nothing you do there either. Oh, yeah, I definitely know that feeling as well. I almost always start most of my trips sick anyways, because I think it's like the exact same thing. Just lack of sleep, these big international flights, and then you have to be on point. And, ooh, man, I'm so glad she was a trooper. Holy crap. That's <laughs> huge. Yeah, I, mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm not a, a, a medical doctor, so, like, I don't know what the body goes through in terms of adrenaline and, and, and cortisol and all these different chemicals that help you persevere through the most difficult times. I'm sure I had a lot of it in me. Uh, yes. I know she probably had more in her because she had literally acute injury. Um, so yeah, I'm sure she was, I'm sure her, her own body was doping her up real good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is a crazy story. And now that I'm in the field, I'm, I'm almost positive that it will happen eventually, but thank God that hasn't happened yet. So but yeah. just like you just alluded to, you've been doing this for 20 years all over the world. There has to be another story of a different dimension or even the same dimension, but you said that's your only um, evac. Is there another story that comes to mind that just like, oh my God, I got to tell you this one story. <laughs> yeah, another one, uh, fortunately, not really any other major medical evacs. Like I've, I've had plenty of folks that have come down with like flus at high altitude before. And like that, that's a worrying situation. None of them had to be evac, but that's always like high alert because you can go from uh, or the the level of emergency can go from zero to 10 real quickly. But yeah, one one other story. Well, I should say before this story, like so many of my stories kind of begin and end with like the whole airport kerfuffle. Right. And, you know, <laughs> probably out there know that like 
if you travel a lot, like your fair share of just harrowing airport experiences, you could write a book just not, on nothing but that. But the reality is like, even though, you know, I've had, I had a really recent one going up to um, uh, Churchill, uh, where the polar bear migration happens on the shore of Hudson Bay. And, you know, in the moment, it was nuts, uh, like how we had to get rerouted and like the plane situation. But it's funny, like the story of it is like, oh, really, you got rerouted to a different airport? Like <laughs> big what? But yeah, like, you know, we're up there. We got this whole group of uh, three different groups of, of travelers going to see polar bears for the first time. And um, you were just about to land in a little tiny Churchill airport. And, you know, it's a two and a half hour flight for like 10 minutes from landing. And, you know, you just... You just know when you're playing circling, like, oh, <laughs> I feel like we're circling the airport. Why? Why are we circling? And pilots come on and say, well, there's an aircraft maintenance issue. And they were kind of cagey about it. But the what we learned later was it wasn't that we couldn't land. It's that if we landed, it probably wouldn't be able to take off again until maintenance got there to fix it. And like, that's the issue with like a lot of these remote places is, is if they don't have the maintenance crew or, or the parts there, what do they do? They, have, you know, they, if that plane is grounded for days, the airplane company is losing a ton of money. So they elected to reroute us to Thompson. You probably haven't heard this story, but this is this is from no. your, uh, your alma mater. It's it's not that crazy of a story, but we were rerouted to Thompson, which is kind of a, a little bit of like a rough and tumble town that's just um, at the very edge of the Arctic. It's kind of like the northernmost extent of roadways in Manitoba, and you know maybe not throughout all of Canada, but it's a very Northern town kind of end of the road, literally metaphorically. And we, we land there and, you know, here we're in this, it's kind of like a mining town and a forestry town. So people are, you know, a lot of, you know, Paul Bunyan type folks that are down on their luck. Uh, and I don't mean to like stereotype, but, you know, it just has that vibe. And, and here we are, the, our NatHab groups of, you know, all these American travelers, little blue jackets, like <laughs> and like oh god this is gonna look so weird because we weren't supposed to be there we never go there like and we're just these uniform like eco travelers walking in and, and so then you know they needed to dispose of that aircraft and get us a new one and so a one hour delay becomes a two hour delay you know the airport is is one room there's no food and you know we were supposed to be getting lunch the moment we landed so we're kind of like getting that point and so, you know, our operations team, you know, gets Quiznos delivered and gets pizza delivered. And, you know, after seven hours of delay in one room with like 50 people, like the room's made for like 14. It, it was just, oh my you God. Know, I'm sure it's, it's a, you had to be there kind of thing. I'm sure nobody in the audience is feeling bad for me, uh, getting to <laughs> polar bears and having to wait in a small waiting room. But in the moment when you have the care of all these people that have such high expectations, you're losing time. There's a ton of uncertainty and, you know, it's not real pleasant because it's just not where you want. It's not where you want to be. Um, we finally take off. It's now nighttime. So like the entire day has gone by waiting in this airport. Um, and the cool thing is, and that actually, I forgot about this part of the story, but this is um, a little bit of like a lesson in life is so then we had our moment of like relief. We're like, oh, it was all worth it. So we're on the plane and we're, I don't know, halfway in. So we're about like 30 minutes from takeoff, 30 minutes before landing. The pilot comes on and says, hey, um, you know, folks, if you look out your right hand side of the plane, we get a little shimmer of aurora in the distance. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. And so we look out the window and it's like 
this guy was really dumbing it down. It was like a blazing aurora. Like the oh, entire wow. East was like all aurora. It was actually one of the best aurora shows I've ever seen. And, and you were uh, in the sky. Yeah, we were in the sky in an airplane. That's so cool. Yes, they're taking you know, iPhone photos and they're turning out amazing. And it, and it was like, it wasn't just like a show. It was like a really good Northern Lights show. And I've seen a lot of them. And it was like, from that point on, everyone was like, oh yeah, that's why this happened. That's why the delay happened. Like the universe had a plan for us. It was really cool. Like everybody's like completely, nobody was really outwardly complaining. Everybody knew we were all in this together. It was just total bum luck. But everybody was like, okay, that was worth it. So that was that was a good one. But so I have, you know, I have other airport delay stories, but I'll save you from that. The the story I was gonna get into before I, I took the tangent there on on air travel stuff. So in the the late aughts, like two thousand and seven through nine or whatever, I, I guided several uh expeditions to Papua New Guinea, which is an awesome place. I'd love to go back there. I don't I wonder if it's changed at all. You know, it was just very, very remote and rural and, and folks there are kind of living like in the stone age, uh, it was just extraordinary. Uh, and so we're, the cool thing about it is you have this amazing village culture and the people are so welcoming and there's, it's so amazing to sit down with them. And like a lot of what you do is just kind of like sit with them and see their daily life. And, and they're very welcoming. Like the, the chief of the village meets you personally upon arrival. Cause like you're these people, just, there's not a lot of interaction at that time anyway. So a, a local company, set out to build like several really, really high end eco lodges to support like Western visitors visiting these really remote locations. And of course, it's all part of this idea of ecotourism and conservation travel to help get income to these remote communities to help with things like education and healthcare and food and clothing and all that just to provide some income with local guides. And you know, when you visit the village, you're obviously paying them for for visitation and whatnot, but it's all very, very authentic. Anyway, so these lodges are really nice. Like when you look at them, you're like, oh my gosh, that looks like a house in Aspen. You know, it's like really, really nice. But then they're on the edge of just, you know, BFE, like just total wilderness. Like who knows what's out there? There, there aren't any like real crazy predators, um, but but there are like headhunters, <laughs> or there were, um, and there are, you know, they're. I wouldn't want to like bump into a tribe in the forest unannounced. You know what I mean? So it's really, really wild place. And so we're at this lodge and we're in between activities. And uh, this this guy um, apparently just decided, like, one of my travelers decided to go on a hike on his own without telling anybody oh, uh, in the adjacent forest. And, you know, he saw a trail and it's probably a wildlife trail. Like there, there really weren't extensive trails in the forest. Um, these areas are really well known for birds of paradise. There are like dozens of species and each one of these lodges, in addition to being close to like local villages and extraordinary culture, um, there's usually a set number of bird of paradise um, species that you can see. So there's like rudimentary trails, but like it is dense and penetrable forest. I mean, Papua New Guinea, the reason it's still so remote and rural and undeveloped is because most people think it just can't be developed. The topography is way too... Uh, way too many ravines and gorges. It's too hilly. Like you, you just couldn't efficiently build. So to get into a lot of these places, whether they're doing any sort of humanitarian aid or development, it's, it's all a helicopter. Like they're just really aren't roads. But this guy decides to go for a little little afternoon hike. Um, doesn't tell anybody. And then you know, by the time dinner comes around, his wife comes. Is like, have you seen such and such? I don't remember his name, but I'd probably I protect it to keep him anonymous. But uh, 
have you seen such and such? I'm like, no, isn't he with you? Like, <laughs> what do you mean? I don't wife. know. There's, there's like this lodge and there's that hill. Like what? I don't know. And so we're like, we're just checking the whole lodge. We go into every single room. Uh, like, is he here? Is he here? Just, just, you know, if we're going to set out in the forest to find him, like that's a big deal. Eventually we conclude that someone saw him walk into the forest. Like one of the, one of the uh, folks at the lodge or something didn't say anything about it. And now it's on now. Now it's like search party and it's getting dark. And so basically we had to hire, uh, local tribesmen that were formerly like hunters, headhunters to use their skills of like looking for little branch branches broken and like tracking scents and like, like, so he's being hunted now for all for oh the right purposes. Oh my God. Yes. For all the right purposes. But like at the end of the day, like I didn't hire these guys to go find him. Like the lodge did. And they're like, no, no, these, these are the guys that you want tracking a person in the forest. I'm like, do you? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully all of them comes back uh and so and it, it takes a long time and i'm just thinking like where how did this guy get himself into such a situation because like we we had schedules and he knew it'd be back at a certain time and um and it's getting cold because it's uh i don't remember the elevation but um it's one of these rainforests where it's hot in the day but very cold at night and very humid so like if you don't have proper gear and so Long story short, and this is also kind of in the days where like cell phone coverage wasn't ubiquitous and certainly we're so far remote. Like, so we weren't able to know where these trackers were, but after like four hours from getting the search party out, they finally get him and they, they walk him back and he's, he's just, he's walking out of the forest with these, you know, guys like bones through their noses and, oh and, and the, you know, like locking arm because I, he was kind of like weak. I think he, his nervous system was probably just freaking wrecked. Like, I think he was, he really got himself into a pickle and he knew it. And yeah, he's like, you know, just looks like a ghost coming out of the forest. Like, and who knows, like if, like, I don't think those, those uh, trackers spoke English. So like, who knows what was going through his head as they approached and made noises and were like making shouts and, and the way that they, the search parties would often communicate is from like bird calls and like reptile calls, like weird little like clicks and sounds that like help them communicate to the forest without talking. And like, who knows what was going on to this guy's head as he was hearing this approach. Uh, but yeah, end of the story is that he's safe and sound. He got back, but yeah, he just got, he went in the forest. He got turned around. All the trails looked the same. And eventually he just decided to like sit down and, you know, the right thing to do is like, don't get further in, wait for people to find you. But it was a long time before people found him. And that was a really nerve wracking experience. This was actually before the Kenya trip. And just knowing how quickly someone else's decision that you don't really have any governance over um, or even awareness can turn into like, a pretty serious life issue. Um, unfortunately, all is well that ends well. We got him back. His wife, like, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I remember completely right, but like when she saw him, she like walked up to him and I think she like slapped him or like, <laughs> like hit him, like punched him and made, gave him a huge embrace. Like, like, damn you for making me worry so much. Um, but he was a great guy. Like, you know, just the naivete of people in, in different lands. Uh, so yeah, that was another one that comes to mind is just, um, I was very nervous. I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is probably only a handful of years in my guiding career. Like, did I just lose someone in Papua New Guinea? Like, that's <laughs> no way to 
So yeah, wasn't a real great feeling, but again, the crazy catastrophes kind of make for sort of interesting stories, hopefully. Now, what about wildlife encounters? Because you are in conservation tourism. For anyone who didn't know, Court and I used to work really closely together at NatHab, and you've been guiding for so long, and the focus of what we do is wildlife. And while we know the rules, wildlife doesn't always know the rules. You know, it's like, we need to say this amount of feet away from you, but that doesn't necessarily mean the wildlife does or, or what have you, um, whatever your crazy stories are. But what about that? How does wildlife yeah. fit into this story of yours? Yeah. So, yeah, indeed, a wildlife guide. That's kind of primarily what we're after for most of these expeditions, at least those in the last 10 years. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the, I could go on and on with the number of times I've just seen something cool. I'm like, that is memorable, whether it's, you know, a 70-foot whale or not 70-foot, but uh, a 70,000-pound whale breaching, you know, big humpback whale right next to your boat. But they're they're so they're so hard to describe and get people to relate to. There a lot of you had to be there moments or times when you get right next to big male orangutans or or you're on the Kinabatangan River in Borneo and you see you know a huge group of proboscis monkeys. But yeah, kind of you had to be there. But there there is one time uh, again going with primates where yeah I got I got a little bit startled a um, little bit a bit of an understatement, but. So we're tracking gorillas, uh, trekking, but you know, our trackers are tracking them. We're, we're trekking, we're hiking, um, and we're getting very, very close to the troop. And if you haven't done a uh, gorilla trekking experience before, you know, in Uganda and Rwanda, it's very similar, uh, regardless of what entrance, what national park, what, where you're at, but you're, you're kind of trekking for a couple hours. And then the, the guards and rangers that kind of keep tabs on these gorillas, they let you know when they're close. So we knew we were close. We encounter this awesome silverback, big, big male, and he's away from the troop, they tell us. And they're like, but he'll lead you to him. I'm like, oh, really? Like, he's going to be like our concierge, like just to walk <laughs> up to the troop? And lo and behold, he did, you know. And so I, I'm leading the pack of, of guests behind me. And then I've got like a ranger right in front of me, kind of like up into my left, like at my 10 o'clock. And uh, this is a pretty short story, but I remember... I, we were walking probably, oh, maybe 20, 30 feet behind this gorilla, something like a respectful distance, not too close, but not too far. And this is just how it's done. And I remember walking and I had this sort of unimpeded view of this big silverback, you know, big silver, like literally a silverback and just massive brute, you know, 400 pounds plus. And I'm like, man, this would be so cool. I have my camera around my neck. I'm like, this would be so cool if I got uh, a a video of me just like following this gorilla. How cool. And so I get my camera, I'm opening it up, I'm fiddling with it. And then I hear something and it's my ranger who's now splayed out on his back, tripped over a log. And I'm like, huh. Then I look in front and here is a male gorilla like right here, six oh inches in front of my God. face. Um, yeah. Like, and apparently, you know, he, maybe he wasn't showing us the way or he, we were maybe we were a little too close, and for that I feel bad. But for whatever reason, he decided to do a charge at us. It spooked the ranger. The ranger backed up, and he's no no longer my guard. He's just flat out on the floor, and I had his gorilla in my face. Um, it ha but within that same split moment, he turned around and left as well. So it's like he was in my face, and I kid you not, before my brain fired off neurons to process it and react, he was already moving away from us. 
And so like, I just sat there like, huh, that was pretty cool. I put everybody <laughs> behind me. He's like, my, my dumb ass is like looking down at my camera to try to like get this, get it on, get settings. And uh, so I just awaken to the surprise of the gorilla. Everybody else is shocked. Like, oh my God, like, how, do you, how are you still standing there? And that's all well and good. It was kind of a cool experience, a fun story. But I, I am so bummed, so bummed I wasn't a little bit faster with that camera recording. Because you can only imagine oh how insane that footage would have been. And I'm not trying to say like at the expense of the animal, this sort of thing. But, you know, the, the gorilla was in control. But it would have been a really interesting video of me walking and having this gorilla just be right up in my face. Um, I didn't even see it, didn't record it. <laughs> anyway, so that was, that was a pretty wild one. But of course, I, I love watching gorillas. I mean, they're they're so extraordinary. And apparently, uh, you know, these these bluff charges are not uncommon. They're extremely habituated animals. And, and this is just kind of, it's actually not so much of a, hey, don't get so close or don't follow me as much as a, hey, don't forget who's boss. Don't, and so he showed me who's boss. I knew it from the get-go. He was boss, but it, it <laughs> underlined the point. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I chat my pants. I don't even, like, I don't, when a creature four times my size, even, I mean, I've been mock charged by elephants, you know, and mm. on multiple continents now. Um, uh, rhinos, like, and they never actually show full aggression, but that alone in a vehicle, like, I can only imagine being on foot. <gasps> with a silverback, a silverback in his prime. He was the leader of that troop. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. The fact that, I mean, it might, it's probably a good thing you didn't see it coming because you might have either fell down or lost, <laughs> lost your balance oh, yeah. too. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that was the best scenario because right? maybe I, yeah, seriously. Yeah, because if the ranger tripped and fell backwards, like, geez, that must have been quite a show of force. <laughs> mm. Right. And he does that literally every day of his life, probably more than once, you know? So, wow. Okay. That is incredible. Yeah. So with those amazing stories in mind, and I just, you know, reminded everyone that it's been now years since you've been on the show. What have you been up to? What updates can you share with us since the last time you sat? I mean, wow, we recorded in December, 2020. And yeah. it is now the fall of 2023. So yeah. please, I'm sure you've been up to so much, but I would love to hear the updates as I'm sure everybody would. Yeah, certainly will. Oh gosh, yeah, a lot. Um, and I'm so stoked that Rewildology is still kicking and going strong and bigger and better and badder than ever. So kudos to you for, for the last three years as well. But yeah, since that time, obviously a lot more expeditions, a lot of guiding, including... Um, some pretty exciting places like Iceland and uh, a lot more on Borneo and um, all sorts of great stuff. Started guiding our, our Florida trips, which is actually a pretty funny thing uh, down to the Everglades and Florida Keys. You wouldn't really think of Florida being on par with uh, some of these bigger wildlife adventures. But I got to say, it's it's kind of it's surprisingly delightful when you get down into the, the heart of the Everglades and into the beautiful aquatic system of the Florida Keys and all the kind of weird, wacky, tropical wildlife that has found a home only in these little keys, like, like deer, key deer that are half the size of a normal deer, um, you know, amazing burrowing owls, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, just guiding all, all of, you know, whatever I can. Um, but then also for my more day job, professional uh, desk career, I've uh, fulfilled the role or climbed in the role of chief sustainability officer at Natural Habitat. So 
Um, previous to that, I was I was still very much in sustainability, but it was very very split into different um, priorities and positions that were under my umbrella. So just the the ardent hardcore sustainability and conservation didn't get uh, as much attention as we would have liked. And so now it's it's 100 of the show, which is fantastic. Is doing things like uh, we just published our first sustainability report, annual sustainability report. Uh, we're doing some really, really great uh, YouTube videos on the Natural Habitat Adventures channel that has me kind of at my little home studio. My, my computer's a little bit kilter, off kilter right now, but if you were to see the rest of it, uh, it's a nice little home studio. Got a little it video is. light up there. Um, yeah, it's very organized. Got the bobblehead in the background. Um, so yeah, we <laughs> went some conservation films there, which is fantastic. And then, of course, uh, looking at greening operations across the world and you know like i always say when i look at sustainability in the travel business it's it's really a two-sided coin you have the minimizing negative impacts which we all know that's like kind of classic sustainability you're minimizing your footprint but then the other part that doesn't often get looped into the definition but i think is, is cornerstone of it is maximizing the positive impacts of travel because you know you can only minimize your negative impacts so much there's a point where your sheer existence is the impact and we're not going to do anything about that. Right. Uh, but the great thing about conservation travel is that it provides this extraordinary good around the world. Some of these examples, like I was talking about in Papua New Guinea, supporting local villages, um, of course, you know, anywhere conservation travel touches, you get maximizing positive benefits. And so storytelling on that and, and showcasing it and, and help, helping to increase the positive benefit is a big, big part of what I'm up to on a day-to-day basis. Well, congrats on that and everything that you're doing. That is so exciting. Yeah, you've always been, to me, one of like the most knowledgeable people in this field. Like, How can we make conservation travel the most impactful in a positive way? So that is great to hear that you're even deeper and deeper into that. And of course, I'll need to hear all of the updates. We won't bore everyone on all the specifics because that's your and mine. We can geek out all day on that. And everyone's like, okay, Brooke, you talk about conservation tourism too much as it is. So <laughs> we'll bore them all those details, but that is that is fantastic. And I'm so happy to hear that. Congrats. Oh, thanks, Brooke. No, it feels, it feels great. You know, we're making a pretty big impact. Oh, oh, that's awesome. Well, again, Court, thanks so much for coming back on and sharing those crazy stories. Now we have them in audio form and video form from here on out so that we can listen to those stories and just how fantastic they are. And we can unbundle from our campfire Mm -hmm. flannel and come back to come back to reality. But again, Court, thank you so much for sitting down with me. My pleasure, Brooke. Great to be here. Thank you for joining me on this wild adventure today. I hope you've been inspired by the incredible stories, insights, and knowledge shared in this episode. To learn more about what you heard, be sure to check out the show notes at rewildology.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to stay connected with the Rewildology community, hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app. I read every comment left across the show's platforms and your feedback truly does mean the world to me. Also, please follow the show on your favorite social media app, join the Rewildology's Facebook group and sign up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter. In the newsletter, I share recent episodes, the latest conservation news, opportunities from across the field and updates from past guests. If you're feeling inspired and would like to make a financial contribution to the show, 
head on over to rewildology.com and donate directly to the show through PayPal or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. Remember, rewilding isn't just a concept, it's a call to action. Whether it's supporting a local conservation project, reducing your own impact, or simply sharing the knowledge you've gained today, you have the power to make a difference. A big thank you to the guests that come onto the show and share their knowledge with all of us, and to all of you, Rewildology listeners, for making the show everything it is today. This is Brooke signing off. Remember, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>